Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 28 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. Back home finally after a rather lengthy road trip, and it's good to be back in the home studio for recording. Much easier than recording on the road. Likewise, likewise, Max. I've been on the road a lot myself lately, and I'm happy to be grounded for a while, to be completely honest. Runway Girl is ready to be grounded for a little bit. (laughs) Oh, you deserve it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, Before we get started, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more, and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we're all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, back by popular demand, John Walton. He is an international aviation journalist. He writes for a variety of titles, including Australian Aviation, Airways News, Aircraft Interiors International, and of course, Runway Girl Network, where he also pens a very forthright, upfront opinion and analysis column on RGN. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks, Mary. It's always a pleasure to be back talking PaxX with you and Max. All right. Well, why don't we get started and take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. First, we see Southwest Airlines. They're the latest in a growing list of publicly traded companies appearing to stretch the truth in their comments to the press about PaxX improvements. Well, the carrier recently revealed a new seat for its new 737 NGs and 737 Maxes, but it doesn't seem to live up to prior claims about being wider. John, you've observed this story play out since the Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg, and you've been vocal about your feelings on Twitter. What's going on? Well, Max, um, Southwest released a press message back in April suggesting they managed to create wider seats with, with this BE Aerospace manufactured Meridian seating. Now, I know everyone I talked to at the Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg was very dubious about that because, look, there are limits to how wide you can make your seats in any aircraft, but particularly in a Boeing 737. I mean, that aircraft has the same fuselage diameter as a 707 and 727, and Southwest wasn't doing anything material like carving out sidewall room or raising floors or adopting a staggered seating pattern or anything. Now, all they were doing with this claim of wider seats, as runway girl Seth Miller discovered when we finally got to see the actual seats, was making the armrest narrower. And, and look, that misdirection and obfuscation is, is really what I object to. It's, it's fine to claim all kinds of things about these seats. You know, maybe they are sculpted more efficiently to make more knee room. Maybe they do have an articulated headrest. Maybe the armrest gets out of your hip space. But look, if you cannot create space, then don't put out a press message that gets sucked up by the less knowledgeable parts of the media claiming that you've created extra space. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a it's a fascinating story, really, to see this all play out. Because, uh, of course, the cross section, the 
the diameter of the tube hasn't changed. And <laughs> this is why there was a major red flag back in April at Aircraft Interiors Expo, where we all kind of raised that hairy eyeball, because uh, if the tube isn't getting bigger, and as John said, these additional uh, you know, a sidewall alteration or, or raising the floor, if this isn't happening, then you're using the exact same space. Um, and so it was really very strange. And I, I, I've, I've had a very interesting exercise today. I've gone back to those reports that came out um, in April and mass media, I mean, everybody covered this story. Southwest Airlines going to have the widest seat in the North American skies on a 737 and all of this stuff. And what I found interesting was that when I went back to Southwest Airlines' original press release, it was rather basic. It did make a a claim of of going to have uh, the widest seat, but the stories that came out from that press release and the comments that Southwest made to the press, now that is where we saw a lot of embellishment. And I have to say, I'm seeing this more and more where these corporations publish a press release and they keep it kind of very basic and then they allow their spokespeople to embellish, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And these stories then get totally blown out of proportion. So I, I just, I'm, it's concerning because we're seeing this more and more at this point. It, it's, it's happening a lot. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, look, here's the thing. Southwest put out this misleading press information. Mm-hmm. Um, their seat maker, BE Aerospace, hid those seats from us. They hid them, which expert. was right, right. I mean, we had all these people saying, hey, if you've seen those new Southwest seats, we just sat in them. They're great. And BE Aerospace is literally telling us, oh, no, they're still in development. We don't have them here. No, no, no seats here, boss. Right. Um, you know, and they reiterated Southwest claims, and now they've been found out. I mean, look, for, for me, it's unacceptable. For me, it's shameful. And the industry needs to call it out, right? I mean, these are publicly trading companies. Uh-huh. Acting in ways that remind me very strongly of the recent debacle that Volkswagen have been participating in. And yes. just look how well that's turning out for them. Right. Max, of course, you've been in this industry for many, many years. (laughs) And uh, not to suggest you're old, Max, but, you know, uh, is it unprecedented? (laughs) Is it unprecedented? Because, you know, I would say in the near two decades I've been covering aviation, um, I I can't remember a time when corporations were able to get away with as much as they're getting away with now. You really used to have to stand by your press release Unless, uh, yeah, are, does this seem strange to you, what we're, what we're talking about today? Yes, yeah. it, it does seem strange. And there could be a number of different causes. Uh, one mm-hmm. could be that just internally, the communication as to the message isn't getting to all the places where it, where it needs to, mm-hmm. and that it's an internal communication problem. Uh, that's probably the least worrisome of all the scenarios. Another, of course, mm-hmm. being that it's a deliberate uh, a move or strategy to take this kind of approach. And and that's where, yes, I have ethical problems with that, uh, mm-hmm. as, I think, as well as, as John does. But uh, I'm just very curious to, to know what is the reason behind what we're seeing. And the other thing is that, you know, if they don't get this corrected quickly – the, the social media, the press is going to be very unforgiving and also very quick to to call them out on it. And if it gets out of 
uh, out of control, if they lose control of it, then uh, they've got a real problem. Yeah, that's what's so kind of interesting is that um, and now we, I, I'm proud to say, are, have called them out on it, but I haven't seen too many others do the same. And so it begs the question, is media at a point, and I guess this, you know, it, it goes into the broader discussion of how media is evolving, but, you know, there's a real clickbait mentality out there and it's still there. And that story was a big story in April. And so the Bloombergs and the others of the world that covered it as if this is the greatest thing for Southwest passengers, it doesn't behoove them then to backtrack and say, actually, we didn't ask the tough questions back in April. And so I just don't see now, I'd love to be proven wrong this week, but I just don't see that happening. John, do you? No, I don't see it happening either. I mean, I, I think that the days where responsible media put out corrections to stories uh, are gone. Um, you know, and, and even if they were corrections, you know, they were always on, you know, page 12 or whatever, right? They were never mm-hmm. as prominent as the, as the original story. Um, and I think that that's part of the problem. You know, I mean, we have so many, um, I hate to, to, to sort of really call out new media about this because it's not all new media. So, mm-hmm. I mean, let, let's say it's, it's the Mashables, it's the Gawkers, it's, it's that sort of large new media conglomerate, which has a very cynical way of approaching things, um, which is all about initial eyeballs, and that's it. I mean, they don't really care if you read the story even. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just... There's so much of me that, that objects to that on a fundamental level. Um, I just mm-hmm. don't think that's very good journalism. Um, and I don't think it's a good idea for airlines to be playing into that kind of media behavior. Well, we can't talk about strange goings-ons by corporations in the PAXX world without mentioning our friends over at BAE Systems, uh, which also created quite a stir at the recent Apex Expo in Portland, Oregon. Now, BAE Systems, and this is I want to I want to track this for you guys so you can see how it all worked out. But BAE Systems put out a press release, very basic, but saying quite amazingly to this part of the industry that they had reached an agreement with a major Hollywood studio, that a major Hollywood studio had given them the green light, the blessing, to stream early window movie content to passengers' own devices. Now, this type of announcement um, would potentially have major effects in the industry. Um, It would be considered huge, huge news. So myself and John, actually, as it turned out, we rushed over to BAE to get some clarity on the situation. And whilst BAE wouldn't tell us uh, who the studio was, um, they informed us that not only had they received uh, agreement with one studio, but they had got the green light from a second studio. And we ended up having a very lengthy conversation, actually multiple conversations with BAE. Um, It turned out that, uh, was it on the last day of the show, John? Uh, Yeah, I was flying out and I get this email from John saying BAE is backtracking on some of what it said to us at the show. And I thought, my God, we have spent so much time chasing this story, making sure that we had asked the tough questions, reaching out to their partners um, for guidance and to make sure that, 
you know, this was all accurate and here they were retracting. And uh, it's been kind of a, a shameful situation in the IFE industry. BAE now having uh, given itself quite a bad name because it's it's not the first time it's kind of been fudgy on these press releases. Um, it did so uh, when it first came on the scene, in fact, and said that it was integrating tablets into seat backs. And then we spoke to the airline Vistara and they said, no, we're not doing any of that. So, uh, it, John, that was another example. And of course, I think that then when all of this Southwest stuff hit, I, I had had it up to my eyeballs in dishonesty. <laughs> you know, I, I'm starting to think that the subtitle for this year's expo should have been, you know, Seats, Lies and Early Window Videotapes. Because, <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, the, here's my problem with it. It's like the, the, the question of whether or not they have this early window content and what this early window content is, is a huge one for the industry, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, uh, one of the uh, IFE providers told me that, that 50% of what people watch is early window content. And it's only 5% of what is actually on the plane. So these are movies that people want to watch. It's big business and it's huge business for Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, I do still have real questions about Hollywood's paranoia here, right? I mean, these are, are you know, big Hollywood blockbuster movies. They're all pirated from somewhere before they even get to the aircraft. Do you really think that people are going to be sucking down a, a 480p version of, you know, Avengers whatever, through their iPad on a Delta flight to Milwaukee. I, I just don't see the, the threat here from, for, for the studios. Uh, no, I understand that. I understand that. And le- I just wanted to interject real fast and say I, we reached out to every one of the major studios in Hollywood and every one of the majors. And there are six majors. Now, there are smaller Hollywood studios out there that are called mini majors. And any one of them could have partnered with BAE. But the majors, which BAE claimed it had one of the big six, every one of them denied this. And I guess for me, as a content producer as well, I can understand wanting to protect your content. You know, we see our content stolen all the time. So it's, I'm just looking at things as slightly different because we put out so much content and I don't want my content stolen in any version. But, but at the same time, I, I, I think that what they're doing is just not – it's not really looking at the real – space in which the content is pirated um but but regardless look i mean that that's that's just a little bit of background as to why why this early window content is such a big thing right and you know and it is such a big thing i mean back in april everyone was saying this will never happen even be you were saying this will never happen um and for them now to claim that it is um but not to be able to talk about a studio um and for their airline partner not really to be giving them a oh yeah this is great we'll we're totally backing them up on this we absolutely want uh hollywood blockbusters is it's just it is all very strange mary um you know i'm baffled that large multinational companies are are behaving in this very odd way it it doesn't make sense we'll all be uh watching for the runway girl network to keep on top of all of these things for us I mean, if no one else will, we'll have the network. Oh, Max, honestly, I told you earlier I'm exhausted. I really am. I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) We are. We're all working really hard. Oh, Hmm. Lord. Well, let's push on then and uh, talk about patents. Patents is a topic that doesn't always generate a lot of enthusiasm, but it would be hard (laughs) not to miss the uh, recent news that Airbus has filed a patent for a flying bunk bed. And in fact, uh, really, every major media title has covered this story. 
but uh, this particular patent application that follows along with uh, a long list of kind of wacky patent applications that we've seen uh, for aircraft seats, but also for some other aircraft components as well. But Mary, is this part of a broader strategy on the part of the airframers and seat makers, do you think? Yeah, I, I believe it absolutely is. I believe they are trying to cover any potential eventuality or even uh, the unknowns. The, the future is unknown. Um, you know, current regulations uh, would make most of the seat patent applications that we're seeing, um, they they aren't airworthy, um, quite simply. They're just not airworthy at this juncture. Um, you know, regulators um, haven't even yet given their blessing to kind of, you know, seating design that are, 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 are slightly off the beaten track, let alone, you know, uh, adding a mezzanine level within the cabin and uh, having passengers climb steps and uh, kind of placing them above the heads of other travelers, which is what this Airbus kind of, kind of flying bunk bed um, application tried to do. So we're seeing, like, and it's on a daily, sometimes <laughs> hourly basis. I mean, we are getting flooded. And I have to say, and I got to give him a shout out, um, Arrow Patent on Twitter, at Arrow Patent. Yes. Yes. Uh, he is really just, I mean, he's keeping us all abreast of all of the patents that are hitting the aviation space, but of course for us, for the passenger experience. And uh, there is a torrent of them. And it's coming from uh, the Airbuses and the Boeings and the BE Aerospaces and the Zodiac Aerospaces. All the major seat guys, they're all trying to, to get in on variations of, of different designs. So I do believe it's intellectual property strategy at play. And and others uh, that, uh, that study this type of stuff on social media have actually even said the same thing. But I also believe it's um, kind of publicity as well. They know that people are, the media is now paying attention to these patents. I mean, like, let's look at Airbus. Um, you know, in the last year, Airbus has ha- has hit the headlines several times just based on these kind of wild patents of like saddle seats and all of these designs that e- even Airbus itself in the past has told us, um, you know, wouldn't pass scrutiny with regulators. <laughs> they're, they're still applying for it. So it's IP strategy. But wor- what worries me is that, again, people unknowingly, they click onto these articles and this is the next big thing and the writers are not telling the the, the other side of the story here that this is not coming to prom, prime time any day soon. If They're ever. not telling that. It's No, exactly. And this is, it's again, it's clickbaitable material and, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people asked me, is this, what, is this the next thing? Is this the next big thing? And I thought, dear Lord, I, I cannot believe this, that media, again, is not, uh, they're not asking these tough questions of the regulators, of the airframers, of the experts in the field. They're just letting it go out there into the wild. John, your thoughts? I, I'm curious about this. I mean, flying bunk beds and, and everything else. It, it, I love I love reimagining the cabin. I don't want to be gotten wrong in this point. I love to reimagine the cabin, but it has, you know, this is, it's getting kind of wild out there. No, I, I agree, Mary. I, I, you know what I want? I want the airline equivalent of Snopes.com, but for, <laughs> will we ever see this in the sky? Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and we can add a new channel to Runway Girl, John, you know? <laughs> uh, but look, I think it's really telling that the serious aviation media aren't covering a lot of these. You know, it's the Mashables and the NBCs and, you know, Fortune.com of the world assigning it to their clickbait department. 
Right. But what I do find interesting in all of this is that it feeds into this ongoing narrative that airframers and seat makers and airlines are all just out there to do terrible things to passengers. Right. Now, and here's the problem with that is that, look, that's a narrative that's really damaging into the industry. It makes people not want to fly. It affects the way that people look at airlines and, and look at the many very praiseworthy things that a lot of airlines and seat makers and airframers are doing in terms of the passenger experience, even down in the economy. And they just think, oh, it's all terrible, um, so I'll just fly with whoever's cheapest. And to me, that's actually a, a huge issue for the industry. And, and I feel that all of the airlines who are, who are doing this kind of thing, all of the airframers and seat makers who are doing this kind of thing, might just want to take a step back and say, actually... For wide flying, as it were, is this a good idea to be continually doing this? You know, should we be filing these, frankly, media-worthy images with our patents? Or could we, you know, file images that, you know, are not necessarily the ones that... Because they're all doing it. They're they're all filing these images which are basically print quality, which they hope to get on on the front page of of all these websites. Um, Yes. And it seems to me that a return to... You know, and, and, and I'm, you know... Absolutely fine with, as you said, with, with, with passenger experience innovation, with people doing new things in cabins. I think that's great. But it strikes me that the patent process itself as a, uh, a media driver, it's, it's just a bad idea. Mm. It's almost like mm. unintended bad messaging. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think I think you're really onto something here in terms of turning off passengers. I I don't know that passengers need much more at this point because we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing people getting much more vocal. I got to tell you, John, um, you wrote um, a piece for your upfront column called "Why I Tell People Not to Fly the Seven Eight Seven in Economy Class." Do you remember that? Of course, that this was a while ago. Now, that piece still gets tremendous traffic to this day. I mean, there are days where that piece is soaring on, in traffic because people are coming across it online and they're realizing this. They, they're, they're flying the 787. They're being told that this is, you know, this was a dreamliner. It's going to be a dream. And they're getting onto this nine abreast layout and they are really disappointed. And the, the, the comments are stacking up on that piece. The readership is stacking up on that piece. And people are cottoning on to the fact that some of the you know configurations out there are, are really grossly uncomfortable, and I, I certainly don't want to just throw Boeing in it. There are you know nine abreast A three thirties out there flying around that are grossly uncomfortable as well. But the seven eight seven being lauded as this great aircraft, but kind of back to the original point is that you know the, this patent nonsense just adds this no, another layer again, as you said, feeding into this narrative of they're out to they're out to hurt us poor passengers down the back and. It's, I just don't think it's the right time for this sort of thing. It's never the right time for this. It's, you know, scaring passengers. Um, Max, did you did you get a chance to t- take a look at this flying bunk bed here uh, design? Yeah, I did. I, I I sort of like looking at patent applications actually because, uh, well, I used to live amongst patent lawyers, so I, I learned a thing or three about Ooh, them. Lucky you. And, and, uh, <laughs> <it's> really, <laughs> and uh, there are so many, it raises so many questions about practicality, about the weight of you know, all these mechanisms, and it just strikes me as, let's just patent everything we can, just in case. 
many companies that we see this in the in the IT mm-hmm. world or the uh, consumer electronics world, let's say, uh, all the time where patents are used as uh, defensive weapons or even offensive weapons against competition. And I don't know, maybe the uh, airframers are observing this and thinking that that's a strategy that they may want to uh, employ as well, just in case, uh, because mm-hmm. if they don't, the other guy may. But mm-hmm. In the end, I, I, I don't see a lot of value. I just, I just really don't. No, I absolutely agree. And you, you know what I would find delightful is if in the whole thing with wider, the, the patent system basically being broken in the US, in that whole wider discussion, if a lot of the, the, the silly things that people are doing now in aviation were just invalidated when it came around to you know, revamping the patent system, I, I would find that absolutely delicious. <laughs> and of course, there's all sorts of prior art in other forms of transport. And a lot of people on social media bring this up in terms of the bunk beds and flight and everything else. It's all been done actually before. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've traveled in, in things that are very similar to that on long distance train journeys, obviously yes. outside the West. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're on, in hard sleeper on a Chinese railway, you, you are stacked three high. And it's actually not that hard to get in and out of. And, you know, if you have mobility issues, you can always find yourself a lower bunk. But, um, but yeah, it is different. Um, and there are reasons why we don't really do this in aviation, right? Yes, yes, yes. I always remind people, you know, we, you, you got to remember the elderly, passengers of reduced mobility. Uh, you have to remember uh, pregnant women. I mean, this is what, this is what happened when uh, Michael O'Leary uh, of Ryanair said he was going to do stand-up seats. Well, to hell with all of these uh, passengers. And, of course, the issue that isn't discussed and which, you know, unfortunately we don't have time to get into today, but we really should do so down in the road, is that airline distribution right now still hasn't evolved to the point where even extra legroom products are visible, um, uh, you know, across all global distribution systems. And, and that right there is just kind of stunning. So you can't even talk about these kind of new compartments and new designs and new seating product without talking about airline distribution. And um, so we're going to have to do that another day because that the one one goes hand in hand with the other, yes. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really want to talk to John about his uh, recent trip to Iceland, yes. which uh, sounds very, very exciting. But uh, John, you uncovered a story about how Iceland Air is using sensors and connectivity to put itself really, I guess, on the forefront of weather forecasting. John, what's going on with that? Mm, yeah, so this is super interesting. Um, so essentially, it's a system called TAMDAR, right? And it's a, the, the system itself is a small strake attached to the side of the aircraft that takes weather readings, sort of like a weather balloon would, right? Now, Panasonic Avionics acquired this system a few years ago, and you'll now find the sensors on all kinds of airlines, predominantly regional, um, because the weather data up to 20,000 feet is more valuable than in the troposphere above that. And the interesting thing about it is that it all means more effective and timely weather forecasts can be produced. And that's both for aviation purposes and for wider meteorological forecasting, right? So, I mean, you can be a power supplier in the US or in Europe, um, and you want to know when the hot weather or the cold weather is coming in. And having more data means that the, the people who crunch those data and turn them into forecasts can make better forecasts and and it's absolutely fascinating this is going on the products that this system also creates and and the way in which it passes data back can also fulfill the account flight tracking mandate which is of course something that you mary have been talking about a lot and about something that lots of airlines are thinking about these days right 
and it's it's really impressive to see Iceland are moving uh, in in this fashion. And and in fact, um, they're working with uh, Panasonic, as you mentioned, on this. And then they have a separate cabin connectivity system um, that is is completely separate. So at a time when the industry is looking at what can you do with that pipe, um, Iceland Air obviously has that complete separation, which is truly an ideal, right? In terms of you know what the op- the opportunities down the road for for flight tracking. But one thing we should mention is that the working group that um, uh, for ICAO on flight tracking has recommended that they delay the mandate for airlines to be tracking um, every 15 minutes. It, it should be shocking to us, but it really isn't <laughs> shocking <laughs> that ICAO is dragging its feet. I'll, I'll admit, I just rolled my eyes and mentally said, of course they have. Of course. I mean, it's it's <laughs> yeah, I, I just so I'm sort of so blasé and resigned about about the whole um, the way that, that these mandates work that that uh, yeah it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I'm, it's disappointing though. Um, right. There's no real reason why you shouldn't have flight tracking um, every 15 minutes at least, if not every five or, or, or ten minutes, um, and to have it delayed again is is that's really disappointing. It is, it is. Um, but yeah, so I, but Iceland Air, impressive, impressive situation, of course. And I, and I, I, you know, we hear a lot about the Internet of Things and the IoT of aviation. And when I saw this piece, I thought it struck me as this is a really grand example of the IoT of aviation. And in fact, I felt so, you know, moved by your piece, John, that I did, which I rarely do, but I did a, a promoted tweet because I thought it was just so profound what they were doing. And it was amazing because folks on Twitter were coming back and saying, this is the first promoted tweet I've ever received that was worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> that was worth clicking through to because it's such an in-depth piece and it really explains what they're doing. And so props to Iceland Air. And of course, as you said, this uh, has uh, has uh, an impact for, for weather forecasting uh, wherever. I mean, AirAsia apparently is the next one, right, to, to do mm. this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, obviously, AirAsia is very useful because that part of the world is, um, you know, has some very problematic weather, as we saw within the last year, um, with the with the crash of that AirAsia Indonesia plane, which appears to be largely weather related. Um, but the the real trick apparently is to get the regional airlines with these Tamdar sensors on them, hmm. because it's that zero to twenty thousand feet level that yeah. that has a lot of the data that's particularly useful. Um, but you know, Mary, it's funny you should talk about promoted tweets while. Well, I was in, uh, in in Iceland Air HQ. They mentioned that they were the first and apparently only company within Iceland to be working with Twitter on promoted tweets. Oh wow! So, so yeah, uh, uh, there is a bit of symmetry there. <laughs> that is, that's fantastic. How about you, Max? I mean, I I know we we get, dive into the connectivity stuff, but it sounds like Iceland Air is kind of doing the right things. Well, my question is. Who makes money off of this? Well, um, so it's uh, obviously this is a product that Panasonic is installing and profiting from. Um, so I'm assuming, well, reading between the lines of, of several discussions I've had on this, is that if you have the Tamdar system the sensors on your planes, you get a sweetheart deal on the weather forecasting products ah. and being able to use the data, the, the tracking data to, to fix your efficiency. But a lot of it also comes from the natural, resor- the natural resources sector. So, for example, if you're a power company, you, you want really good weather systems. Um, if you're a weather forecaster of any sort, um, more data is better. And so, I, I, as I understand it, the, the, the money maker here is selling those weather products that come off this system. Hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. And there's also some funding coming up in line here in the United States um, via NOAA. I mean, it's, it hasn't been, I don't think it, it has passed a full Congress yes, but yet, but um, it passed the House a, a few months ago. And this would provide, I think it's like $125 million to help fund to get more of this activity here in the U.S. Um, to get this information to NOAA. So it's, uh, you know, it, I, I think that they're finding ways to fund it, Max. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it sounds like the the airlines uh, could become the platform for deploying these sensors to collect data that has some value to the airlines, but also has much broader uh, value across uh, different industries. And of course, Iceland itself is worth going to, right, John? Oh. Just so stunning, the pictures. <laughs> oh, that, it was just great. I mean, uh, look, I took great advantage of Icelandair's one-way fare structure um, and their excellent economy comfort middle seat free premium economy product um, and the fact that they give you a free stopover. Well, it's, it's um, no extra airfare stopover. They do not put you up for a week. Um, but they give you up to a week um, where you can break your journey. Um, and I spent seven days driving around beautiful Iceland. Nice. I mean, what a, what, what a, what a stunning country. Um, I mean, of course, I also stopped at the Iceland Aviation Museum in Akureyri, which has all kinds of fascinating exhibits, you know, like a, a, a 727 cockpit you can walk through and manuals and Rolls-Royce RB211 engines you can just walk up to. Just fascinating. Really fascinating. Oh, very nice. I think cool. I'm going to pen a book when I'm old called Living Vicariously Through John Walton. You <laughs> really have the, the life. Heading off to Japan too, no less. And, uh, and I can't wait to see your reports from there. But unfortunately, we're rapidly coming to a close. I want to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RomeGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Romeo Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Girl. And remember to use the PAXX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience we'd love to have you join in on the conversation i'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor egate solutions and i'd like to thank john for being our guest john where can listeners find you at well mary you can find me on twitter at that john uh online at walton.travel and i'm on facebook and instagram and all other places just pop john walton aviation journalist into your nearest search engine great (laughs) thanks john And we'd ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. 